Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late El Emanuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. In 1946, having spent the war years in the United States, El Emanuel returned to Newfoundland, a divorced mother of two small boys. She met American sportsman Lee Wolfe, who was thinking about setting up fly-fishing camps in northwestern Newfoundland. Encouraged by him, Ella suddenly decided to start a sports-fishing venture. In Loman, the once-busy logging town in Bombay, now a quiet campground in Grossmore National Park, she set up a summertime operation called Kill Devil Lodge. Though it didn't last for very long, she gloried in the beauty of her surroundings, as she tells in My Kill Devil Days. Not long after the encounter with the American sportsmen who were looking for fly-fishing opportunities in Newfoundland, I rented a big house in the bottom of the east arm of Bombay, 30 miles from Deer Lake, the nearest town on the railroad. It was a wonderfully peaceful house, for we were quite alone, except for the tiny village of Lomond, a short walk away. Across the bay was the massive form of Kill Devil Mountain, heaving itself out of the water to a height of nearly 2,500 feet, and behind the house a pasture of ten acres, sloping up to hills dark green and brooding. Twenty years earlier, Lomond had been a bustling logging community with a large sawmill by the water. I asked my friend Emma about the village and the twelve families who still lived there. Who, for heaven's sake, has that bright blue wall on the outside of their house? Wonderful, isn't it, she replied. You won't see a thing like that everywhere. I'll tell you about it. All those were company houses, and when the company went out of business, the people stayed on, paying a small rent of anything from 10 to $20 a month, although there wasn't much employment handy. And then when the pulp and paper company bought the place, lock, stock, and barrel, they let everyone stay on at the same small rent, because they needed men to cut the pulpwood. And the people, you can believe me, were glad to work, being near enough to starvation. Well, M continued, after the paper company had cut all the wood around here and pulled out, they finally sold the houses. Elias bought the house you're talking about for $200, two rooms upstairs, two down, and a back kitchen, which he sold to his brother. He just sawed it off, towed it up the lane, and set it down at the edge of the woods. His brother hadn't got around to sheathing it up yet, so there it stands, blue wall with pots and pans hanging on it. And the house with boxes of nasturtiums on the roof, I asked? Oh, that's Lizzie's. In the early morning, a week or so ago, the goats got in her garden and ate the whole works. They were commencing on the nasturtiums when Lizzie woke and drove them out. So next day, she had her son put the boxes on the roof out of harm's way. Nice touch, isn't it? But they were hard times, M told me. During the Depression, there was absolutely no work and damn little dole, about a dollar and eighty cents a month, as I recall. In the winter after we'd moved, I came out here to pack up our house, and I stayed with Lizzie. I remembered that all we had to eat, clear of bread and margarine, was salt herring left from the fall catch. 
Every Friday afternoon, they'd take a net full of fish up to the brook where they'd anchor it in the water to soak and then bring home the net full they'd left the week before. One evening, Lizzie came home and said she'd seen a big black animal creeping down to the brook. Off went the men with their guns and came home with a bear carcass. Well, said Em, by that time everyone was so sick of herring that they fought over the meat. When we were at the table that night, hardly civilized enough to wait for the blessing, so hungry were we, Lizzie said, I wonder if that's the bear that ate Ikey Morris, and we threw the lot in the slop can. The house I rented had been built around 1920 for the Scottish manager of the lumber company. Named by him St. Tecla, it sat solid, four square on its concrete foundation, rising three stories to a gently sloping roof. A narrow platform approached from inside the house through a skylight was built on the highest peak of the roof and edged with low carved pickets and a handrail like the widow's walks on the old Nantucket whaler homes. A white pillared veranda overhung with two giant birch trees sheltered a broad oak door over which was a delicate fanlight. The rooms were square, high-ceilinged, and with at least two windows that flooded light over white walls and birch floors. The garden was sprinkled with English daisies, lupins, Canterbury bells, delphinium, and larkspur, and under the birches gray-blue violets grew on long stems. Beyond the garden was a fringe of spruce and fir on the edge of a terrace, which fell abruptly to the mouth of the Lomond River. So we had river and sea at our front door. The Simpson family, for whom the house had been built, must have enjoyed what was for that period sybaritic comfort. Central heating, the old coal furnace still in the basement, and huge iron radiators in each room, electricity from their own Delco generator, and water from a spring hidden in the hills half a mile away that gushed from the taps in the second-floor bathroom. If the one possession they left behind, a massive handmade mahogany wardrobe, could be taken as an indication, the furnishings were of the very best. Sadly, they did not long enjoy their comfort. By the late 1930s, the mill had closed for lack of business, Simpson had died, and his family had left for good. So I took over the empty house, changed its name to Kildevil Lodge, and began a sports fishing business. It was quite a struggle to provide food and drink for the people who came over the next few years to fish the Lomond and the Upper Humber Rivers. Cooks, cleaners, and handymen came and went, and making arrangements to transport my guests around was never easy. One day... A telegram alerted me that my party was arriving at Deer Lake by train in a couple of hours. I jumped in my jeep and drove as fast as I could over the long, dusty dirt road to the railway station. At one stretch that allowed a glimpse of town and railroad, I saw the puff of smoke from a departing train and drove faster those last few miles. At the station, I rushed out of breath to collect my guests, but the platform was empty. Bert! I asked the station master. Did you see any sports get off here? No, he replied. Were they coming by today's train? Yes, I just saw it pull away from the station. Ha <laughs> ha, no, my dear, that was yesterday's train. Today's train is due tomorrow. 
Save for growing up in my family hotel in Lewisport, surrounded by people coming and going all throughout the year, I had had no experience in hosting guests and dealing with their needs and wants. So after a few years, the venture fizzled out, and I turned to other things. But oh, those marvelous summer days in Lomond, when my two boys were youngsters. One day the wind which always rises at dawn and sleeps at midday, was whipping the trees and carrying the sound of water slapping into the shallow cove. Emma and I mended the fence, turned over the new-mown hay, and transplanted lupins so that they would spread along the edge of the terrace. All morning long as we worked, we could hear my boys shouting with joy in the cove as they rescued floating logs in our boat with galloping ghost painted on her stern. The sea gradually smoothed its wrinkles to such clarity that, looking from the hilltop, we could see where the river's muddy bottom merged into pebbles and saltwater seaweed. A gull poised, plummeted in a steep dive, and rose with fish in its mouth. An osprey closed in with a swoop and snatched the fish. A bald eagle from its nest on the cliff beyond the river flew over us and sailed across the scars on Kildevil to the lush green of the forest. An hour later, on the mirror of the bay, the oars of the galloping ghost rose and dipped as the boys set out to hunt for minerals. In the boat were fishing rods, a matchbox full of hooks and flies that Jonathan had tied with his red hair for dressing, a knapsack for rocks, which must be added to an already enormous collection, and a package of cookies to ward off starvation. The boys were arguing, their voices coming to us clearly about their first port of call, and then they rode round the point and out of sight. Emma and I laughed as we stretched out on the warm, splintery wood of the wharf at the end of the village, our chins barely over the edge so we could look down into the clear water, down to the myriad of fish in the seaweed weaving around the sunken piers. When we had been still, long enough to blend into the fish's landscape, little Connors ventured to the surface to blow bubbles. Tiny fish with movements imperceptible as nerve thrills came to us arrow-straight, as if they went through the air, and the wonderfully magnifying power of water etched them larger than life. When they reached the surface, we could actually see their bones. Em's foot nudged mine. I looked at her without moving, and following her glance saw that what I had taken to be a shadow was a sculpin lying absolutely still against a pier and gazing up at us with unblinking wicked eyes. A school of porpoises rolled lazily past the point and into the bay. Em said, Maybe the boys will be frightened. So we walked along the deserted beach over slippery kelp to the low cliff on which stood a tiny white lighthouse. The sea was deep blue except where Kildevil's reflection streaked it with grey, green and beige. A cloud gathered and sailed slowly toward Birchy Mountain, past a distant waterfall, a thick white streak exposed in velvet sage and green. Beyond us was the galloping ghost, neatly beached and tied to a boulder. The sun was now getting hot and a faint breeze stirred. Voices, fleeting and light, floated over the constant raucous cry of the terns and gulls. The eagle left the eastern cliff with long, graceful, down-swooping wings and sailed across the scars and patches of green spruce. A three-quarter moon hung in a cloudless sky. Some twenty small terns jostled each other over a shoal of mussels, 
They wheeled and splashed and slithered, but when they were silent, there was only the rustling of some small bird in the long grass. It was dark when we pushed the galloping ghost to her mooring and half-carried tired boys to the house. We slept to the sound of the river and the wind stirring the leaves. Sometimes at night, the boys and I watched entranced while our landscape was transmuted by the catalyst of moonlight to something strange and movingly beautiful. It was as if we'd been transported to the mountains of Kashmir, and there came to me a memory buried since my own childhood. We had camped on the seaward shore of an island a mile from the town in Notre Dame Bay where I grew up. At night we built a fire of driftwood, so slow and burning out that my companions went to the tent while I was left to tend the dying fire. I fell asleep for I do not know how long, but I remember that when I woke I was in a new country. The moon, invisible when I fell asleep, was now high in the sky. The stars had faded, all but one ice-blue unwinking planet, and the lights on the far shore were extinguished. I lay with my arms outspread, clutching the earth as it moved slowly, carrying me in its orbit. I felt I was actually sailing across the black of empty space. And for many years, walled off by the sheer mechanics of living, I had forgotten this ecstasy until I saw my own children caught up in it. Oh, that was the never-to-be-forgotten magic of summer in Lomond. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmore National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening.